This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, February 21st. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Mountain Village moves to upgrade housing mitigation. G is for government previews Telluride Town Council. Rural communities shift away from boom and bust. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Telluride and its bluegrass community lost a member of its community last week. Susan Breard of Telluride and Monroe, Louisiana, passed away in her home in Telluride on Friday afternoon, surrounded by family after a two-year battle with pancreatic cancer. Touch of Care Hospice facilitated comfort and care. She was 68 years old. According to the San Miguel County Coroner's Office, Breard came to Telluride in 1991 for the Telluride Bluegrass Festival and never wanted to leave. She and her husband created a strong bluegrass link between Telluride and Louisiana. Briard is survived by her siblings, Barbara and Bob, her children, Maria and Griffin, one grandchild, and her loving husband, Ken. Mountain Village wants developers to build more affordable housing. To do that, the town is looking to update its housing mitigation methodology. With housing mitigation, any new development in Mountain Village will be required to either build employee housing as part of a project or pay a fee to offset the employees needed for the development. Mountain Village is working with Economic Planning Solutions to develop guidelines for those developments. We are recommending a 40% mitigation rate on commercial and a 60% mitigation rate on residential. That's Andrew Knudsen with EPS. He notes those rates are in line with historic rates in San Miguel County. The town of Telluride recently upped its rates for residential to 90%. Looking at commercial, those are things like restaurants and businesses. It also includes hotels. For residential, those are multifamily units or single-family homes. According to Rachel Shinman, also with EPS, the equation works the same for all types of development. She gives an example for a commercial business. It starts with how much development we're building. So in this case, a thousand square feet of commercial space. So this can be office, retail, restaurant, just general commercial space. EPS applies the employee generation rate. Commercial space generates two employees per thousand square feet. And this is employees, not jobs. So it's net of multiple job holders. So this new development gives us two new employees. Using a factor of 400 square feet of housing per employee, that's a need of 800 square feet of employee housing. From there, the equation adds in the mitigation rate of 40%. That equals 320 square feet that the developer must provide of employee housing. Now, Shinman notes a developer does not need to build housing itself. A company could also pay a fee. That totals out to $606 per square foot of housing. But Knudsen adds they also want to incentivize a developer into building, opposed to just paying a fee. Through the methodology, a developer can get a 30% reduction in its housing mitigation if it builds units in town, and a 15% reduction if it builds units in the region, on a transportation line to Mountain Village. At the end of the day, it's easiest to write a check, and most developers are... Uh, looking at a variety of things, and they, they want to get the permit to move forward, and they would prefer writing a check. And what's happening is that communities are ending up with more money than land, and land is at such a premium that there's 
not many options to build. And so for that very reason, we're recommending these incentives where you get a 30% break if you can build your units in town. Council supported the rates laid out by EPS. However, Mayor Leila Benitez does worry about what a 60% mitigation rate could mean for those building homes in the village. We're already a pretty aggressively split community. You're either in deed-restricted housing or more likely than not to be in a multi-million dollar home. We don't have the traditional middle. And I feel like I'd be concerned that this is definitely going to squeeze out whatever potential there is for someone to come in and build a moderate. I'm talking about that person in the middle building a one point something million dollar home. I feel like we're losing that more and more. I mean, when deed restricted homes are going for way above that, are we squeezing out the middle? She questions why the methodology wouldn't recommend an across-the-board 50% mitigation for both commercial and residential. Knudsen hears her concerns but explains a higher mitigation for residential is an industry standard for similar communities. The reason for that is that uh, the commercial has the benefit of being the engine, uh, the economic engine. And it's the commercial is what generates the fiscal revenues for the organization, for the town. Uh, and you don't want to burden your uh, commercial uh, too much to the point where you don't, uh, you don't get that economic investment all of the time. Staff adds businesses also already pay higher rates when it comes to sale and property taxes. And Knudsen says the recommended mitigation rates puts Mountain Village in line with similar communities like Telluride, Jackson Hole, and Aspen. Particularly given the fact that these are the initial standards to be adopted, I don't think you want to come in at the top of the pyramid in terms of uh, regulation. Uh, I think it's a terrific entry point and it will generate resources that the town will then be able to use for housing and as well as units. Uh, so we think it's a good a good place to to start, and you're in, you're where you want to be relative to your competition. Town Council is in support of EPS's recommendation for a 40-60 rate for commercial and residential, with a 30-15 reduction for units built in or out of town. Mountain Village Town Council plans to discuss and vote on an ordinance to adopt the housing mitigation methodology at its March 17th meeting. Telluride Town Council is meeting on Tuesday for its regularly scheduled meeting and summer plans are on the agenda. This week on G is for Government, Council Member Geneva Shawnette shares what to expect. Have a listen. Hey Geneva, thanks for joining me for another installment of G is for Government. Absolutely, let's do it. So Telluride Town Council is back with its regularly scheduled meeting on Tuesday, and you're actually starting with three pretty big work sessions. Can you share what that first one is going to be? Yeah, so I would sort of summarize all work sessions in the morning as um, somewhat of summer social business issues, uh, kind of groups them all together. The first one starts at 9, and that is going to be a liquor licensing uh category work session. Uh, there's The state has passed a couple of 
some interesting, some kind of obscure new liquor laws. And so we, as a local municipality, have the opportunity to allow what the state allows or make more restrictive or not allow um, some of these new items. One example is um, there are now going to be, at the state level, festival liquor permits. So a um, another business like a liquor store could be the operating entity behind liquor sales at a festival. Um, that is contrary to how we operate now, where nonprofits are the only organizations that may profit from liquor sales at a special event. And then the second work session, obviously, COVID restrictions are starting to lessen, but y'all are going to be talking about maybe keeping in place some of those adjustments that came as a result of COVID. We will be talking with our planning director, Ron Quarles, about parklets. Um, we'll, we'll do a little recap about, you know, what we did on Main Street in the past couple summers when we were trying to support um, Main Street businesses with their, you know, restricted indoor dining. But parklets have been really across the country one of the um, kind of experiments and adaptations that seems to be very popular uh, to the public and, of course, to the businesses that get to benefit from them. So we'll discuss whether we'll continue um, the outdoor dining in the parklets like we have been or not, uh, and perhaps making that more permanent program. And then uh, after that, at 11 a.m., we have a discussion about our noise ordinance. Um, We received a couple of public comment letters uh, requesting that council take another look at our noise ordinances in town, which uh, have not been amended or updated in a really long time and are honestly pretty vague. So it's just time for, uh, you know, the council and the community to discuss what we want the noise ordinance to change to or whether it's good as it is. Um, so I, I anticipate a lot of public comment on that one. Yeah. So those are the three work sessions in the morning. Y'all will take a break for lunch and then come back, have some kind of admin type things to get through. And then there's a public hearing and an action item in the afternoon that folks might be interested in. Can you let listeners know what those are going to look at? Yeah. So our public hearing, um, is scheduled for one o'clock and that is going to be third reading of an ordinance, um, regarding, uh, cell towers and, um, you know, with, with 5G, with the 5G rollout around the country and the world, we put together some regulations on how um, telephone companies have to install this equipment with as close to our historic guidelines as possible and safety and things like that. And then after that, we will have first reading of an ordinance. Um, it's called Amending the Town of Telluride Municipal Code at Section 61120 about short-term rental unit license restrictions. This has been an ongoing um, discussion post-election about some amendments uh, to improve the law that was passed to D. Uh, and this is not a unanimous discussion at the moment. As, uh, council's a bit divided on it, and I'm sure we'll, we will be hearing from the public Uh, about these amendments, but um, this is uh, a first draft of a first reading. Um, And then after that, we'll hear from the manager's report and uh, a presentation from Eco Action Partners about their climate action plan. Perfect. Yeah, it's a pretty um, packed agenda for y'all tomorrow. So we're excited to hear all of the discussions that take place. Absolutely. We'll see you there.
Mining has been an economic driver in southwest Colorado since the late 1800s. But when a local mine and power plant closed in 2017, communities on the West End were forced to reimagine. Today, we're rebroadcasting a story looking at the region's effort to create a new economic future. Walk into Wild Gals Market in Nucla, Colorado, and the store is bustling. Owner Galette Corngold is doing inventory on the order that just came in when a member of the community busts through the door. She got her days mixed up and forgot people would be coming to her house for book club in a few short hours. She needs soup and bread. I'm on the phone with Penny and goes, well, Mama's wondering if she could come to the book club today. What? Book club today? I thought it was tomorrow. (laughs) Wild Gals is a success story for the West End Economic Development Corporation, an organization supporting small businesses like Wild Gals Market and encouraging new industry and jobs in the area, something crucial since the closure of local mines. Nucla and Wild Gals sits in Colorado's West End, a collection of communities on the west ends of Montrose and San Miguel counties in the southwest corner of the state, right on the Utah border. If you ask Dina Sheriff, the region has always been boom and bust. The people that came out here, if they were not the original homesteaders, they came out here as part of a mining operation or milling operation for uranium. And then when that kind of fell out of favor post-World War II, we saw a little bit of a bust then. Uranium came back a little bit in the early 80s, busted again in the 90s, and it's been very volatile since then. Sheriff is the executive director of the West End Economic Development Corporation, or WEEDSEE. The last bust came when the New Horizon mine and the Tri-State Power Generation Facility closed in 2017. It's been challenging when you have a community of less than a thousand people. You're talking 10% of your population was impacted by this. And that's just direct impact. That doesn't count the grocery stores and the gas stations and the hair salons and everything that were also impacted. According to Sheriff, about 60% of the mining workforce moved. Businesses on Main Street largely sat empty, But a group of locals in the West End did see the closure coming and created Weedsea with the aim of helping new businesses and the region weather the storm. That's everything from how to set up your books, how to hire, do you need a personnel manual, where do you find employees. We really help them try and identify every piece of their business so that they can be successful. Sheriff says Weedsea focuses on three areas of business growth entrepreneurship, value-added agriculture, and outdoor recreation and tourism. To date, Weedsea has worked with over 100 entrepreneurs in the area, with 36 of those turning into businesses. Galette Corngold, over at Wild Gals, was one of those entrepreneurs, although she didn't lose her job when the mine closed. Originally from Montreal, Canada, she and her husband moved into the area just before the pandemic and bought an old mechanic shop. Once we moved here, I realized that there was no food that I really wanted to eat in this town. And we had this great space at the front of the building, and I decided to open a food store. Wild Gals Market focuses on local, organic, and homemade goods from the region 
with a selection of ingredients from the international market. We have elk and other game meats. Korngold says Weedsy was integral to developing the plan for Wild Gals. I took accounting classes and business mentoring from Weedsy and because we don't have a commercial kitchen of our own yet and we make a lot of homemade food, we use the kitchen at Weetsy, and that's just been the greatest resource. We love that kitchen. The West End is shifting. New businesses are opening, and broadband across the region makes remote work easy, drawing workers from across the state and country looking for a rural life. Corngold says it's an exciting time to be in the area. I feel like we're at the beginning of a renaissance here, and it's really cool to be a part of it. As that renaissance continues, the future of the region is still to be determined. But for Sheriff, she hopes the days of boom and bust are over. For her, it's all about steady community-building growth over the long term. And Weedsey plans to be there every step of the way. Sure, Dorothy, the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion got off to some pretty impressive adventures. But what about Scott Schmidt, Glenn Plake, and Mike Hatrup? They are the cliff-jumping, extreme-skiing subjects of the rockumentary film Blizzard of Oz. Director Greg Stump showcases some of the best ski action from the premier extreme skiing destinations in the world. And this week, the film is coming to Telluride, kicking off the Wilkinson Public Library's One Book, One Canyon. There will be prizes for the best 80s ski attire and free pizza. A screening of The Blizzard of Oz will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Friday, February 25th at 6 p.m. Sign-up is requested so the library knows how much pizza to order. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is moving forward with its Western Slope Mountain Lion Density Study, with the aim of getting a better understanding of the mountain lion population across the area. The study is in its second year and moving into the Gunnison region. In year one, researchers were based in northwest Colorado. Over the next decade, the study will alternate between the two areas. CPW biologists are placing GPS collars on adult mountain lions in addition to putting a number of remote cameras in the region. By analyzing images from the cameras, CPW researchers can identify tagged mountain lions with those who are not. The relationship between marked and unmarked mountain lions will help CPW estimate the density in the area. With the data collected from the study, CPW says it will be able to develop more informed wildlife management decisions. Last year, the town of Lake City canceled its annual ice climbing festival due to the coronavirus pandemic. This year, it's back. KVNF's Laura Palmasano was at the event earlier this month and brings this report. Rob Almer of Woodland Park, Colorado is in town for the Lake City Ice Climbing Festival. He's about to scale an ice wall at the town's ice climbing park. This is called Top Rope, where the rope is uh, set up at the top and coming down, so it's quite safe. You have a partner taking up the slack as you climb up the ice, and they lower you down when you reach the top. Almer holds an ice tool in each hand. Ice tools. So these are what let you make forward progress on the ice, and then on our feet are crampons. A crampon is a spike device that attaches to a climber's boot so they can kick into the ice and gain traction. 
Almer's also wearing snow clothes, a harness, and helmet. You really want to make sure you're aware of any ice coming down. So like if you're close to the wall, it's a good idea to have a helmet on and watch out for people uh, yelling ice because that means they've knocked something down and it's it's coming down. Now he starts up the ice wall. I'm all ready. All right, climbing. I will try to not shower ice down. Chelsea Tossing traveled from Denver for the festival. She's a rock climber who started ice climbing about three years ago. She loves it. The beauty of the surroundings, but also the juxtaposition of the sharpness of your tools and the ephemeral nature of ice, and I just think it's stunning. Lake City is in Colorado San Juan Mountains, near the Continental Divide. It's the only town in Hinsdale County, the most remote county in the lower 48 states. Kate Hobson is a marketing consultant for the town and a volunteer at the ice climbing festival. She says Lake City's remoteness is what attracts ice climbers to the area. Lake City is still relatively small and quiet, and so it's just a different feel than you might get elsewhere. You come out on the weekday, you'll have the entire wall to yourself, basically. Ice climber Rob Almer likes that the park isn't crowded. I think it's great. It's low key, it's a friendly town, and uh, yeah, it's not busy here. Avoiding the crowds is why we come here. The Lake City Ice Climbs Park has over 40 climbing routes. The town wants to expand the park by adding additional routes before next year's climbing festival. However, that expansion depends on if the town can come up with the needed funding. Reporting from Lake City, I'm Laura Palmisano. A new study of historical climate records show the West's current drought is the driest period in 1,200 years. KUNC's Alex Hager has more. Scientists measured the rings of trees, which act as a chronicle of how wet the ground was over the years. They found the 22-year dry stretch we're in now is worse than any they've seen since 800 AD. Park Williams at the University of California, Los Angeles, is the study's lead author. He says human activity is making things a lot hotter. And hot temperatures have the very straightforward effect of drying out landscapes. And that means that every raindrop and snowflake is just a little less potent because it, it evaporates more quickly in this warmer world. William says about 40% of the current drought severity is directly linked to human-caused warming. And it'll take more than one extra wet year to turn things around. I'm Alex Hager. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with a low around 20 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 40 miles per hour. Three to five inches of snow accumulation is possible. Tuesday, there is a 90% chance of snow showers with a high near freezing and a low around 20. Winds could gust as high as 40 miles per hour. Four to eight inches of snow accumulation is possible. Wednesday, there is a 100% chance of snow showers, with a high near 30 degrees and a low around 10. Winds could gust as high as 40 miles per hour. There is a winter storm warning in effect through Thursday. This has been the news for Monday, February 21st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hi, my name is Robin and I'm the Advocate Coordinator at the San Miguel Resource Center. We are offering another 40-hour Victim Advocate training beginning next Tuesday on February 22nd. The trainings will be entirely virtual and will go from 6 to 8 p.m. every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday 
for three consecutive weeks. We will cover subjects such as sexual assault, domestic violence, child advocacy, trauma and mental health, the legal system, and more. We've invited guest speakers who are experts in their fields to present to the class offering valuable and unique perspectives. Once you've completed the 40-hour training, you will be a certified victim advocate in the state of Colorado. You will also then be eligible to volunteer at the San Miguel Resource Center on a, our 24-hour helpline, though there is no volunteering requirement. If you are interested in signing up or would like more information, please email me at advocates, which is A-D-V-O-C-A-T-E-S, at smrcco.org, or give us a call at 970-728-5660. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Cutout. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.